Alright, I think we're going to be starting up now. Very good. Okay, so... <clears throat> no, we don't have a lot of people today. Uh, but anyway, let us go with questions to start there. So do does anybody have questions about the uh, the assignment? Well, it's, it's due in the 5th, right? Which is... Oh, it's Sunday. Yeah, so... Um, it, it's supposed to be like Sunday night. Is the idea. I mean, if you... Uh, honestly, Sunday by midnight. If you turn it in before class, I honestly am not going to notice. I'm not going... I'm not going to start grading at midnight on Sunday. Um, but theoretically, it's due... Uh, it's due Sunday by midnight. Unless, wait, today's the second, right? Or is today the third? Today's the second. So it's... Monday's the fifth. Okay, my, my bad. <laughs> Sorry. So... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You have until Monday at midnight. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, Monday at midnight. So... And again, if it comes in Tuesday morning... Um, it, I'm not going to notice. I mean, it's time stamped, so I'll notice, but it, I'm not going to care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Like, like I said, I'm, I'm not the, the point of the due date is to, you know, have some kind you know, like put, put some parameters on it. I, I'm not going to start grading these things till Tuesday. So, you know, if it, um, if it comes in before 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning, um, I, I'm not really going to care. Okay, but any, any questions about the actual qualifications of the assignment? It's, it's really just going to be, a lot of it's going to be graded based upon do you fulfill the requirements of it, um, which are listed out pretty specifically there. So it'll be based on, uh, based upon that. Um, the, the, I mean, the, kind of the intellectual content is, it, it's not particularly in-depth, nor is it intended to. It's more to start looking at the words as conveying meaning. Um, so as long as you sort of fulfill the, the different points that you're required to fulfill, then you'll get credit for it. Um, just with some things with the scansion that I've been seeing is be careful that you're, you're following the examples given the, the link later chapter that I scanned and put in there are to help you. I've gotten some scansion where it's um, like the entire word is emphasized. So ponderous, the, the person said like, the stress should go on ponderous as opposed to, a, you know, dividing up ponderous into three syllables. Um, so j just be careful of that, right? Take, take a look at those examples that that link later puts out there. Um, and you can kind of see, you know, you can be creative, but also know what a syllable is. Uh, anything else? Five hundred words for each section. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so some other things that I, I was coming across uh, or have come across before. Um, remember to to do the research in the second portion where you're looking at the characteristic of the character. You know, looking looking at the bi biography of the character. Um, you know, take. Try and find a source and find a source. Don't don't try to uh, find a source and you know use that to support your idea. So one person doing Cordelia and she talked about marriage a lot, or the student talked about marriage with regards to Cordelia. 
um, but didn't do any kind of research on marriage at that time. So, you know, do that research. It's not an incredibly demanding amount of research, but know a little bit about early modern marriage. Um, and especially since Cordelia is regal, marriage has a particularly important and peculiar meaning. Um, and so, yeah, looking into that. So remember to actually, th that would be like not doing the assignment, right? So, you know, <laughs> do, do that aspect of the assignment. Right, any other questions? Okay, good. So let's finish up. So the plan is to look at Lear, look at a few few scenes really really following Lear this time as last time we followed Edmund and Edgar and Gloucester um, and then lastly to take a look at Ron and the the changes that uh, Kurosawa made um, besides you know the, the major like it's sons instead of daughters you know they're talking in in words that Kurosawa wrote not that Shakespeare wrote but other kind of more broad thematic changes um, but one place I want to start is, and one thing I'm interested in in this play that we talked about a lot last time is this idea of, of nature and what is natural, what is unnatural. And so I want to jump into, um, act two, scene four, Lear's speech, which starts on line two, six, four. And this is, um, where he's responding after he after he's had a conversation with Goneril and Regan. Um, Goneril has already said you can't come, you know, you have to leave with your hundred men. And then Regan has rejected him as well. Um, and so I'll, I'll give you some lines up to there and then we'll take a look at that speech. This is Goneril speaking. Hear me, my lord. What need you five and twenty? Ten or five? to follow in a house where twice so many have command to tend you. Regan, what need one? Then this is the speech I'm, I'm interested in. O reason, not the, o reason, not the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest thing superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as a beast. Thou art a lady. If only to go warm were gorgeous, why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, where scarcely keeps thee warm. But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man, as full of grief as age, wretched in both. If it be you that stirs these daughters' hearts against their father, fool me not so much to bear it tamely. Touch me with noble anger, and let not women's weapons, water drops, stain my man's cheeks. Okay, so let's take a let's break that down and see what that speech actually means. So I'll I'll ask the general question: What is he actually saying here? So let's start with the, the beginning. Um, Regan says, what need one? Uh, what need one refers to attendants, right? Knights, guards, whatever. Like Lear, you don't need any guards. We have twice as many people or servants, you know, his court. Lear has kind of this, this wandering court now. Um, and and this, the daughters are saying, you don't need any. I actually have twice as many people living in this house who are willing to serve you. Why do you need this extra stuff? Um, and his response, Oh, reason not the need. Our basest beggars are in the poorest thing superfluous. What do those two lines mean? Exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's don't don't talk about me. Like I I don't need these things. Um, you know, people, kings or beggars want things that they don't need, right? Um and that makes kings and beggars and humans different from different from what? From animals, right? Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life's as cheap as as beasts. So when he's saying man's life, it's it's. I'll kind of translate this here. Um, if you don't allow nature more than nature needs, then man's life is as cheap as a beast. That's you know what he's saying. So if you don't, if I'm only allowed to have what I need or what I require, then I'm an animal, right? That's that's how animals are. Um, Thou art a lady, if only to go warm were gorgeous, why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. So you, you are, you, Regan and Goneril, are, are also like this. Um, you don't concern yourself with appearance because it keeps you warm, right? That's all you would need by nature. You're, you're concerned with appearance for something more than that. So... We have this kind of figuring of nature as as what in these first few lines of the speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like nature is is like a bottom line, and that we decorate over nature, maybe. Um, that that society is something like over nature, but I like I like that description, Rachel. It's a bottom line, um, and then as the speech goes on, um, let's go down to line two seventy eight. Um, know you unnatural hags. I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall. I will do such things, what they are, yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. <laughs> um, you think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. I'll have full cause of weeping, but this heart, then we hear storm and tempest, shall break into a hundred thousand flaws, or ere I'll weep. O oh, fool, I shall go mad. So now we get to this other half. So the, like Rachel's saying, in the first half, nature is this kind of bottom line. It's this base. And to be human is to be above that in some way, right? To, to allow yourself more than need. Um, but now, now we get the word unnatural, right? Um, how is unnatural being used there? How are the hags, uh, Goneril and Regan, how are they unnatural? Okay, how are they going against their nature? Okay. Okay. That's great. That two great scans there of it. It's um, the first thing you said. It's like oh, it's almost like the, the kind of Machiavellian instinct, uh, which again they they've read Machiavell in uh, Machiavelli in England at this time. Um, but that uh, and he appears in, in some play in uh, I think a Marlowe play he appears. But anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, the the idea of like doing whatever you you can do for power being dishonest that's sort of an like an unnatural way of ruling right there's this kind of natural uh natural hierarchy that is 
the king and the aristocracy and the royal family and inheritance, um, like you're saying. And there's also natural familial ties. You know, you don't treat your parents this way. You honor and revere your parents and try and, and give them what they want. That's, you know, quote unquote, the natural way uh, a family is supposed to behave to each other. And so we now have um, these different ideas of nature floating in the same speech. We have this idea, you know, and, and Rachel has been uh, Rachel has been kind of laying out these definitions for us, which, you know, we have nature as this baseline, as this thing that humans should be above in whatever capacity they can do that. You know, even beggars should be above it. So the lowest of the low are above this baseline. Um, but nature is also this, uh, this way the world should be, that human association should be. And it's also the way a family should be. And so in this, this speech, this conflict of nature and what is natural, what state should we be in vis-a-vis -vis each other is, is, you know, it becomes apparent here, um, you know, is nature something to escape? And, you know, and in attempting to escape it, are these other natural bonds of family ties, are they going to be affected? It seems so here, right? Because Lear sees his, um, his non-rational reason for having his, his 100 courtiers around him. That really does harm his relationships with his daughters. Um, you know, what, what is Goneril's complaint about those 100 courtiers in the previous scene? Or two scenes before, sorry. What, what was her complaint? Yeah, he can. Um, but her complaint is, is kind of like, th that's a worry they both have, um, you know, but her, her complaint initially is they're disruptive. <laughs> they're, they're kinds of, they're, they're pains in ass, you know, they're, they're a pain in the ass of, of that, that kink castle that she has, that her and her husband have. Um, so they're, you know, not only a danger, but they're disruptive. They're a problem, right? And so his, his, need for something superfluous for something fancy is actually you know something quote-unquote unnatural or above nature is actually disrupting these bonds now this is not to let Goneril off the hook but you know at the same time um oh sorry uh, but at the same time is it on don't disrupt no it is not my fault. There we go. Anyway, at the same time, um, you know, th this these conflicting ideas of nature don't necessarily um, add up to a stable unity. You know what I mean? You know, there's um, there's this desire for something more. There's this desire for possibly power, for prestige, for royalty. You know, but at the same time. Um, the the natural world or the natural society of people uh, tends towards hierarchy, towards stability, um, towards you know the bond of uh, king to to citizen, etc. Um, and so the, the I think the conflict of this play that you know the kind of instability is is really trapped in this speech, and then we get towards the end here the kind of the, the seeds of what's to come in terms of Lear's psychology. Um, and so jumping down to uh, line 282, you'll think I'll weep, I'll not weep. I'll have full cause of weeping, but this heart, and then there's a storm and tempest stage direction. So they had some kind of basic special effects that you can make the sound of, um, the sound of a storm. Uh, storm and tempest stage effect, uh, directions. And then he says, shall break into a hundred thousand flaws, flaws means pieces, or e'er I'll weep, O fool, I shall go mad. And so looking at this 
this little bit, this ending here, what does this conf these conflicting ideas of nature and how to balance these responsibilities, what does that lead to in this speech? And it could, it might be both, right? Because we have Lear, we, we know what happens to Lear. What's the, what's the big psychological journey Lear makes? Is he a suit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he he realizes, he, you know, his that he's violated this this father daughter bond, um, and in in so doing has violated the the kind of the ordering of the state, right? So the the kingdom in England is not stable, you know the the political situation is not stable. It's not natural anymore because he has. Um, in some way violated the natural relationship between father and daughter. Um, but also Lear in recognizing that what allows him to recognize that is that he goes mad, but he's, he's kind of off his rocker from act three onward, you know, act three, two to the end of the play. And even when Cordelia dies, right, he starts like holding a feather over her mouth to see if it can, if, if she's breathing, if the feather moves, then then she'll be breathing. Um, and he sees a feather move, even though it's not moving. So even in recognizing his errors, he's still mentally, um, not mentally fit. And so the speech ends with the word mad. And it seems like nature is breaking in here. And it's, re you know, he's reduced to to groveling. He's, you know... We're going to go to the blow wins blow speech, but he's reduced to groveling. He's reduced to like a state lower than a beggar. Um, but at the same time, it seems like the storm is coming in right here when uh, the relationship between father and daughter is turning unnatural. Um, so it seems, you know, in, in Shakespeare, you have this kind of idea of the the physical world mirroring the psychological world which you have everywhere <laughs> you know like horror movies tend not to be filmed in the sunlight right horror movies it's like a creepy castle and a, and a rainstorm you know it, it's the same thing Shakespeare's really doing the same thing though you know we could give Shakespeare maybe a little more credit um, but I think that's that's what's happening here this is the moment where the natural world is invading and it's it's dangerous here you know because we're going to see Lear we're going to see Lear reduced to what you were calling Rachel the baseline um, so any other thoughts about about that speech or that setup so far we're 25 minutes into class already this, this thing flies at least for me <laughs> okay let so let's keep going um Next thing I wanted to look at, let me see my notes here. Um, so three, two. Um, yeah, so this, you know, three, one is Kent and a gentleman arguing about, uh, you know, about what is happening with, with France, that France is sending spies and is interested in coming in to, 
to England, and we know France does. But anyway, 3-2, very famous speech with, with Lear and the Fool, blow winds blow and crack your cheeks, rage blow, you cataracts, hurricanes, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drown the cocks, you sulfurous and thought-executing fires, etc., etc., etc. So, and then we have the fool in response, you know, is saying, um, oh, nuncle, and nuncle is just a, a term of affection. Oh, nuncle, court holy water in a dry house. It is better than this rainwater out of doors. Good nuncle, in, ask thy daughter blessing. Here a knight pities neither wise men nor fools, and then later the fool. He that has a house to put his head in has a good head piece, and then he sings a little song. So, um, let's get into that a little bit. Let's start with these these first little blocks of texts that Lear has to say, and then uh, the fool's response and the fool's role in this play. Uh, so, what do you guys think of this this scene? How this opens? <laughs> okay. Let's look it up. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ah. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Great. Um. There we go. That's <laughs> so. Yeah, I get waterfalls and hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. Um. I guess that makes the spout make a little more sense. Um. Good, but yeah, it, it is a lot, is that kind of sense of, of too muchness. Um, and then it keeps going, rumble thy belly full, spit fire, spout rain, nor rain, wind, thunder, fire are my daughters. I tax not you, you elements with unkindness. I never gave you kingdom, called you children. You owe me no subscription, then let fall your horrible pleasure. Uh, here I stand, your slave, a poor, infirm, weak, and despised old man. Um, but yet I call you servile ministers that will with two pernicious daughters join your high engendered battles against a head so old and white as this. So, you know, he's kind of calling on nature to to do what? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, he wants it. He wants the, the rain to come and, you know, the, the rain, the storm to come in and kind of correct things or nature to come in and, and fix things. Yeah. And yeah, he keeps, he, I mean, he keeps going on. We see this online uh, 49. Let the great gods that keep the dreadful putter over our heads find out their enemies now. And, you know, the putter just means like turmoil. Um Good. So this is this is a continuation of this. And what is the fool's the fool's response is always towards, you know, let's let's go inside, let's go see your daughters, uh, or go to a church. Um, what is the fool's role in this play more broadly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary pagan, right? <laughs> and you know, pa- pagans. Yeah, pa- pagan stuff for Shakespeare is scary. I mean, Lear is supposed to Lear's a. a he was thought to be real, you know, there, there's no evidence that this person was real, but he was in Hollinshed's Chronicles, and it's supposed to be like 700 BC, like around then. Um, 
And so the inclusion of of Christian iconography in Shakespeare's plays is anachronistic and purposefully so. So even when we get, bef- you know, before the birth of Christ, we uh, were given, we live in a Christian world still. I think that's even true of Julius Caesar, where there's still, you know, it's it's like the Roman Republic and there's still like pseudo-Christian. Um, but I, I think your point, Rachel, your greater point makes a lot of sense, which is um, that there is that there's this this church right that is available to you as a place to um as a place as a contact with society that helps the lowest of the low and instead there he turns to this kind of prayer towards the elements right uh, he's praying to the elements to do something um and this is you know profoundly not what you're supposed to do <laughs> you know you, you're you know, supposed to possibly seek justice in a different way. Um, so good. Yeah. I think that, I think, I think remembering that we're living in a, in a Christian universe, even if Shakespeare himself doesn't seem to be particularly devout is important for understanding these plays. But anyway, going on to the fool, any, any thoughts on him on what his role is in this play? Yeah, I, uh, he's pretty upfront about it in in the original text too, right? You know, he, like he says, like I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't split my egg and hand it off. Um, you know, you you are old before your time. Why am I old before my time? Um, because you should get wisdom before age, right? You know, that the fool says that to him. Uh, so he's he's pretty blunt in both. Um, I I. I found the fool in uh, Ron to be, I don't know what you guys thought, a little, a little much for me, like a little annoying. Um, but, you know, anyway, that, that is the fool's role. Exactly, Kimberly. It is. Was somebody going to speak? It's, it's a, the, the, it's a transgender pop star who's playing that role. So it's, it's a, Yeah. Yeah, uh, she's, I don't, like, I don't know how, I don't know what the Japanese 80s pop star scene was like, but apparently she was like a big deal, Um, you know, so she's not necessarily from the film world, I don't think, but I think people, the Japanese people watching the movie would recognize her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. What else was going to say? Yeah, but I think Kimberly, you're you're definitely right in terms of um, the fool is someone who can tell the truth, and the reason he can tell the truth or she can tell the truth in, in the film is that um, you that that they're designated fool, that they're said you are a fool, which you know means stupid or lacking wisdom, and therefore what you say doesn't have credit. Now, somebody who was a, a regal figure or a member of the court were to say something that direct to the king. Well, this is a person with credit. Therefore, their words are dangerous, right? Their words have purchase. Um, And so therefore, they have to be stricter. They have to be more regulated in their speech. But the fool who has no credit, he has no value uh, in the traditional sense that a courtier would have value. He's able to say whatever the hell he wants to say. So by being kind of divested of responsibilities in the traditional sense, the fool is given this sort of freedom. Um, and what's nice about the fool is he, he seems to sincerely love Lear, right? And he, he, like Kent, the fool and Kent both stick with Lear to the end. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it kills the fool eventually. The fool is hanged or hangs himself. We're not really sure. Um, but why do you think that loyalty on both the part of, of 
Kent and the Fool is is going on in this play. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's it's there. Um, it's a rebuttal, you think, of a, a courtly system. Okay, good. Any other responses? Okay, yeah, I think that's that's sort of, you know one way to look at it is that it's. It's a rebuttal of the system. I mean, an, another way could be that it, it's in support of the system, right? That, you know, this is a person who should be in charge. And it really doesn't matter if Lear himself doesn't want to be in charge anymore. Um, you know, he needs to be in charge until he dies and have, have a clear heir to everything. And he needs to make a wise decision as to who that heir should be. And we're going to stand by the person who should be in charge regardless. Um, and so, I, but I don't think that means you're, you're wrong, Kimberly. I think it's, what's nice about, about Shakespeare um, and uh, Coleridge wrote about this in, in the early 19th century is that these, this kind of issue of the court has these kind of it spawns these Machiavellian figures, right? It's going to be, it's going to have somebody like Goneril and Regan in it. Um, but also the court is where the king is at the center of, and we need a king in order to have a stable society. And this is, you know, democracy is not something that is even in a figment of anybody's imagination, right? For, you know, uh, for a few decades now. So we could just put that aside and just say, you need if you're going to have a politic, you need a regal politic, um, and so you have these kind of two two incompatible forces at the center of this play, and I don't think as readers of of Lear or, or watching it or watching any Shakespeare, you need to necessarily resolve that conflict. I think a lot of the play is about we need you know a good court. Courts inevitably breed bad people, right? You know, it's power. Bad people are going to go to it. <laughs> you know, that they're, they're going to try and wield it. Um, and I think a lot of times with, with Shakespeare, the unresolved conflict is, is what's being highlighted. You know, what, what Keats called um, a negative capability. And so that's something, you know, something to consider. But... What do we have? We don't have a lot of time. So <laughs> last class, we did not get to the death of Lear and Cordelia. Um, so we're going to do that because we, we should, because, you know, it's really important. Um, so last class, we talked, we got to five, eight and we, or five, three, excuse me. And we talked five and three, make it uh, five, three. And we talked about Edmund and um, how Edmund attempts to save Lear and Cordelia from they're them being killed. So what what ends up being what ends up happening in the plot? How does this play end? <laughs> Almost, yeah. That's yeah. Mhm. Mm yeah. Everybody dies. Edgar lives and Kent lives. Um uh, and you know Edgar. Edgar gets the last lines. The weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. Uh, this, so that's that's the you know. <laughs> if, if we want to reduce this play to a moral, that's the moral. Um, the oldest hath borne most. We that are young shall never see so much nor live so long. All right. So we we have this kind of last line, which I I don't know feels very trite to me. Right, that last little collection of rhyming couplets, um, it, it feels like it doesn't get at this play, or it feels like it reduces this play to, 
to like an easy donut to eat. Um, but let's take a look at uh, Lear and Cordelia. So basically, the command is given. Um, Edmund tries to stop it. However, Cordelia's killed. Lear doesn't, and and he comes out with her in his arms. Howl, howl, howl. <laughs> I'm clearly not performing this, <laughs> but howl, howl, howl. Oh, you are men of stones. Had I your tongues and eyes, I'll use them so that heaven's vault should crack. She's gone forever. I know when one is dead and one lives. She's dead as earth. Lend me a looking glass that her breath will mist or stain the stone. Why then she lives. Um, and then blah, blah, blah. This feather stirs. She lives. If it be so, it is a chance which does redeem all sorrows that ever I have felt. Um, Yeah, and then Lear going on. This is line 277. Did I not, fellow? I have seen the day when my good biting falchion, I would have made them skip. I am old now, and these same crosses spoil me. Who are you? Mine eyes are not of the best. I tell you straight. Um, and then this is a dull sight. Are you not Kent? He's a good fellow. I can tell you that. He'll strike in quickly, too. <coughs> etc. So I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop reading there. Um, and so we start with the, uh, we start with, you know, him coming out, um, unable to see Cordelia for what she is. Then he, he notices Cordelia or notices, he realizes she's dead, you know, she's not coming back. Um, and then when he accepts her death, then he can see Kent, right? He's sort of before he dies, given sight. Um, and, you know, he, he seems to come to uh, some sort of moral reckoning before he goes out. So what do people think of this scene? Think of this ending. Yeah, I. So he's he. That it's a really good point that, um, you know, he had the power, uh, and he misused it, and this is the consequence of that misusing. Um, I don't quite feel. Oh well, though. You know, I. He. You know, he's an old man who's holding the dead body of his daughter, uh, and she certainly. Um, I. I certainly feel for. Right. She is, you know pure innocence in, in at least in this affair um any other any other so the the i'll put it i'll phrase it this way before we move on to ron um traditionally in tragedy in elizabethan tragedy um the idea is in order for the world as it should be to be restored the evil has to be killed consequently the good is killed along with it so it's that the you know good and evil are are both exterminated that's what makes it tragic and this kind of little bit of good that remains it remains in order to set the world back in order to set it back up on its feet what do you guys think of that convention in terms of this play Somebody said something, but I don't know. 
Okay. Yeah, so there is, so Kent kind of fulfills that role. And, and Edgar, too, I think even more so. Right? Edgar is, it's almost like there's a, there's the positive character in both plot lines. There's one of them that makes it out. Uh, Kent and, and Edgar. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know if they're similar in character. They're similar in loyalty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Why do you think? I don't have. There, I don't think there's an answer, or I don't have an answer anyway. But why do you think the the fool goes, but Kent can stay behind? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Uh, yeah so that's the thing so you you know you can't have this can't end on a joke right that isn't um that isn't the way this this type of thing happens um yeah Yeah, that, that's that's a really good point, Kimberly. Is that he's he's not credible. What does Kent have? Kent is is a lord, right? He's a member of the aristocracy, so he has uh, political weight and political continuation. He's from that old world. You don't have to kind of restart again. This is also true of of Edgar, who is now going to be the Duke of Gloucester because his his father's dead. So he's also a political heavyweight. Although he's been, for a time anyway, reduced to running shirtless in in the storms. Um, And so that seems to be the thing. If a fool is the only one who remains and the only one who lives, then there is there's nothing credible to save. I I really like that use of the word, Kimberly, credible. Uh, You need someone with some authority to to survive. And this is why this is, you know, what you call like a high tragedy as opposed to let's say um, all my sons or like a 20th century tragedy, which is a high tragedy is going to be about aristocratic people. Uh, he's taking this from Sophocles and Aristotle definitely. Those tragedies of the Greeks were always about regal figures or godly figures. Uh, in Shakespeare it's always about regal figures. So if there's going to be restoration of the the civilization of Lear's world it has to come through a, a regal or aristocratic source a credible source good um so let's let's turn to the film um so what is a major kind of change in the character of Lear in the Ron film in uh, Kurosawa's work Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the plot follows um, these kind of shogunate warriors. Uh, one, the the stand-in for Lear or the analog to Lear is giving up his kingdom to his three sons. And the youngest son, you know, says this is just going to lead to civil war. And so he's banished accordingly, even though he's right. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the big change is, you know, it's obviously sons and not daughters. Um how about in terms of the the version of Lear himself? I feel like he's he's portrayed a little like out of it because like in the beginning mm-hmm. there is a little like beating and like causing problems. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So already he's kind of um yeah, from the beginning, his his age is showing, right? Which I think you could argue is true in in here. I, I think the fool is making that argument, right? Is that you're you're you are not acting wise. Your your age is catching up with you, and um, uh, uh, Kurosawa underlines that. The other thing that I, th- I thought was really interesting in this was um, besides that that 
Siege of the Third Castle, which is a great sequence. It's just such a lovely bit of filmmaking. Um, was that Lear's, the, the way Lear acquired his kingdom, or the, their version of Lear, is shown to be brutal and um, sets his character in a bad light. In his life before the start of this film, the, the analog to Lear um, killed people. He then took the daughters of the people he killed and married them off to his sons. There's the one son of the person he killed who he blinded. The, the, the movie's sort of version of Gloucester, but not really. Uh, and Kurosawa seems to recognize that it's, it's possible that the behavior of Lear um, that sets ill into the world, right, isn't maybe not just the unwise division of his kingdom, but also I think it seems like Kurosawa's theory anyway, or at least what he puts into this, is that the means of acquiring power is in itself is always going to be corrupt um and with this version of lear it's it's very corrupt and i was i was hoping you enjoyed this movie i know it was it was a bit long um i think my last class the only comment they had about the movie was it was long and i think next time i teach this class i may assign a half hour of the movie instead of the whole thing uh but um i i wanted to you know kind of keep showing this play in different ways in different kind of settings in different iterations um, and how the, the kind of base content of the play can be exploded and explored um, in really dramatically different worlds. Um, and also, I think it's, it's a great movie. So hopefully, hopefully somebody enjoyed it besides me. Uh, but the, the length of it is a point well taken. I'll, I'll try and work on that next time I teach this class. So any other comments about Lear or Ran or the assignment or anything at all? The weather? No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's the first time I wore a sweater, uh, which is a shame. I'm a summer person, so this is... I agree with you. Please. I'm, I'm not particularly... I, I think they'll be graded pretty evenly. So it's as long as you're really fulfilling the requirements of the assignment, you should get credit for it. No, I won't be particularly harsh with grammar. Okay, well, you were, we're over time yet again. Um, so you're free to go. If anybody wants to stay on and, and ask questions or whatnot, um, please stay on. But thank you. <laughs>